Peter Grumpy Morgan was a master of the market in the 1990s. He sat at the helm of Perpetual Investments, presiding over a strong performance and billions of inflows. By the time he left the group in 2002, Perpetual had around $12 billion under management and a reputation for one of the most astute managers on the street. Perpetual comfortably outperformed the market, notching up returns of more than 14% per annum during this period. Morgan then struck out on his own, forming 452 Capital with Warwick Negus. Once again, he was instrumental in building a booming funds management business as the share market recovered from the tech wreck of the early 2000s. In the end, Morgan, incorrectly diagnosed with cancer, walked away from 452 Capital and the public limelight, deciding in the end that managing his own money was the preferred option. During his 20-year tenure at the top of the funds management game in Australia, Morgan built a fearsome reputation as a unique value investor, willing to take on any company and any underperforming management and board in the country. At the same time, Morgan garnered the nickname Grumpy, referring to his phone manner most brokers and analysts encountered over the years. The endearing term hardly describes the individual who is always keen for a chat and is generous with his time. Grumpy is still a keen follower of markets and occasionally makes a public appearance to express his views on the lay of the land. Morgan comes from a private school background, but has the personality of a streetwise brawler who likes to get his hands dirty when it comes to investing. I first met Peter in the mid-1990s when I was a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald. He interviewed me for a job as a resources analyst at Perpetual and correctly gave the position to another candidate. Hi, Pete. Not sure whether you remember that day when you interviewed me. Sure, I don't, Matthew. <laughs> I, think, I think you gave it to Rex Adams. Does that sound right? I better stay away from that. Yeah, <laughs> we, we weren't really good at resources in those days. We had an industrial share fund, but yeah, that's true, mate. We gave yeah, it. And I think you said the same thing then. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this job. <laughs> so I'm glad you said no at the time. But and it all worked out okay in the end. So thanks, thanks for coming in today. It's good to see you after a while. Why don't we start with your dad? Yeah. He did, came from Queensland, ended up in Sydney, yeah. ended up in real estate. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this yeah. is my understanding. Did quite well and retired early, but for some reason you didn't take his lead. Real estate in Sydney has got to be one of the best investments ever. What happened there? Oh, well, I think you've got to put a little bit more history into that. My mum and dad got married and had me, you know, a ridiculous age compared to today. I mean, I was born when my mum was 18 and my dad was 23. And they had no money, like they had no money. So I came from a private school. I grew up with, <laughs> you know, with an early, and I mean this sincerely, an early memory of a big bloke coming around on Saturday morning when I was about three or four to collect the rent and basically bashing the door down. And and I suppose as time went on, they had to survive and my dad started in real estate and made that a success. And I watched them go from a you know, a one-bedroom apartment that they were renting to a to a house that they were renting to buying a house and watch my dad slowly succeed. And I don't know why, and, and as, as, you know, I was young enough to watch that success and go with it, that I always wanted to be successful, but I wanted to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, had, had no idea until I got to, basically until I got to Perpetual, how I'd do it. But I had, I had to find my own thing. I didn't want to take the route of, you know, being handed a real estate business or going to real estate just because my dad did it. I had some independence. I don't know why, I just did it. And that conversations in those early days as you grew up, around the kitchen table, in the lounge room, wherever, was there a lot of talk about business and money? Because it sounded like your dad had some objectives and he played them out and did quite well. Yeah, I think he was a bit like myself. I mean, he's very quiet. But when he said something, you know, 
it always – I always respected what he said. You know, I mean, I can still remember driving through him taking me to school at primary school very early on in through Cremorne, and the first units had just gone up. And he said, look at those units. One day they'll be all over Sydney and his mates had built these units, which are actually quite nice units. They've stood the test of time, but they were the first units really to go into that area. And, they, you know, and he was right with regards to it. And, you know, as I said, I watched him go from, you know, having to rent a place to buying a townhouse to then eventually ending up in Mossman in, in 1972 and buying, you know, a place there for... I, th- I think from memory f- for under $100,000 or $70,000 or something like that, it was, you know, it, and in, in those days in Mossman, it was completely different to what it is today. There was no banking money in it. It was still, you know, I can still remember there was a there was a park across the road and one day just after moving in, we got 20 from around the street to come down and play cricket in the park across the road and we'd mow it. Try and do that today or even get, you know, get five to play a cricket game as neighbours that you'd never met. It's... It's just not doable for for whatever reason, and, and it was so, all that sort of stuff. So his property business was about development. Is that where he made his money? No, it was real estate. It was a pure old real estate business. So he, 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 he was broking. He was a real estate agent that worked for a guy called Peter Hill. That coincidentally used to own a lot of racehorses. We'd go out and watch the racehorses run. And he took a liking to my dad, I think. And to put that again in context, you know, he's working six days a week. He was going to council meetings on a Tuesday night to learn about what was going on in the property market, basically, and what developments were going in. And he was doing most of his work on a Saturday. And sometimes I'd go and work and, you know, not go and work, but go go and watch him in the office and that sort of stuff. Just, just so curiosity see. seems to be the key. He well, was, it was curious. More success, you know. If you see someone go from nothing to be successful and he's your father and you respect what he's saying, it just influenced you. Uh, and it influenced me, and and then you know, then in his, you know, you know, obviously I went to a private school after as part of that process, which again is part of the story, I suppose, of of that success. But you know, went to you know a very big private school, and I was just one of the numbers there, and you know, it wasn't a great school to be honest with you. Looking back on it, there's a lot of bullying and a lot of other stuff going on, and <laughs> and but there again, you know, trying to stay away from all that, I, I still wanted to try and prove myself because you know I wasn't, you know, I said one day, you know. You know, I'm going to beat you guys, the guys at you know at Scots and that sort of stuff. Nothing so like a bit of a healthy competition. Name, but, uh, but anyway, and, you, and like. you moved, and eventually you went into accounting, and then you went into broking eventually, which is a bit like your dad was an agent for real estate. Yeah. Broking did that suit your personality? No, couldn't sell, <laughs> couldn't sell to save my dog or my mother. I was hopeless at it. Unless I liked what I was selling, I just couldn't. I couldn't spin anything. I was hopeless. And you know, going back through accounting, that was. A hard slog in the sense that, you know, I didn't really like uni and I got through it, but basically all the way through from school, I was just trying to keep my options open. I wanted to make some money and be independent. And I think, you know, as we've talked about before, I went from a chartered accounting firm to BT as an internal auditor just to basically to get to New York. What was the attraction there? Well, just to get to New York. I just wanted to travel. And BT at the time was effectively partly owned out of New York by Bankers Trust. And I took that job and it was in the, the glory days of BT and I was running around auditing basically these young guys and girls that had, were basically taking on the Australian financial markets, the, the incumbent banks and life officers. And it was, it just opened my eyes up to financial markets. And I, you know, BT in the, only the 18 months I was there, I think grew from about 350 to, to 500 and was still growing. You know, guys like, uh, they were the, they were the Macquarie of the day almost, weren't they? They were. Yeah, they the were. Benchmark. I mean, you know, you know, guys, you know, look at the guys that were there. Chris Corrigan, Gillian Broadbent, you know, Peter Warren, Care was there. 
Yeah. Noel Evran was there. I Big mean, name. it was so, but they all went on to other things as well when it folded for whatever reason. But, you know, they were just, you know, I can remember, I used to have my little audit office and it was, you know, it wasn't a little office, it was quite a good office. Opposite the boardroom at BT and Rob Ferguson would turn up and Gillian would turn up and the whole management team would turn up every Monday morning at about nine o'clock to go through where the lending exposures were. And it was a pretty clean book. Like I just used to watch them just go in there. I, I can't, I couldn't imagine some of the major trading banks doing it because they all had exposure to bond and all that sort of thing at the time. And BT didn't have any of that. And, you know, as you remember, they had the big bet, the big put bet against Holmes Court. And 87 came along and it was all that sort of novelty of it. They were in swaps ahead of their time. They were in, you know, currency trading and, you know, and all this sort of stuff. It was just exciting. So you get, from there, that opened your eyes up. You go into a, a, a stockbroker. Yeah, I'm sitting you- in my office one day and I'm, you know, looking at the ads in the papers and had a small lad in the Sydney Morning Herald to join Belder Elmsley. And, I was thinking, you know, because I'm trying to find the next BT basically because this one's moved, right? And so I get the job at Valder's and going to stockbroking in June 87. And to his credit, the bloke that interviewed me said, I don't know when this market stops, but one day it will stop. Well, it stopped, <laughs> in, right? stopped in September 87, right? And I can still remember that day like it was tomorrow. It's interesting you say September. For those who went through it, September was the peak and it had already trailed off. It was October when the obvious crash came. Yeah, it was. But the it, writing was on the wall for it a little was. while, by I mean, the sense. I mean, it was. I think, you know, I think if you look back on it, it was sort of right. And even in those early days, I was doing a lot of the German accounts and just putting their orders on and they're all trading in these specky mining stocks, yeah. a little bit like today. In some gold. Way, <laughs> in some ways. In, you know, Climax mining and little oil companies coming out of Germany and there were some big orders. But, you know, I can remember the October crash, the telex order that came in, and remember we're talking about telexes coming in overnight there, not not the internet. It stretched up and back the, the Durling desk and it was all cells. Like it was just, it was bizarre. And I remember the guy that I was talking to in Germany saying, you know, we won't have a job next week. So, and that was the introduction to it. So, And 87 doesn't seem to leave the people who went through it. Like we've been through a lot of ups and downs in the market since. Well, that's I think. The ghosts of 87 rattle pretty hard through the house. Well, that does, and also, you know, the recession we had to have. And I, and I think, to be honest with you, I think that does taint you a bit, and it did taint me for a long while, and it probably tainted, and we'll get to Anton and the other guys soon, but it tainted them as well. And in some ways it was a little bit, even though we didn't know it at the time, it was a little bit of a handicap in the sense we hadn't seen markets coming out the other side. I remember you said something interesting to us years ago in a different interview, and you said when you did move to funds management, the old guys said, well, things, they've been through the recession. It was always going to be hard and you were turning over, you and Anton and John Murray and these guys are perpetual when you moved there. Every rock you looked under, there was something to be found and you needed fresh faces and fresh ideas because the guys who had been through it were tainted. They couldn't really see the way forward, but fresh set of eyes could. What effectively happened at Perpetual is that there was a a group of guys and girls that, and I I don't know why they left, but they left not long after 87. But they'd left this portfolio that had stood the test of time through 87 and into the recession we had to have. You know, the guys were Chris Bernays and Bruce Robertson was was there. He yeah, Bruce. Bruce. And yeah. Amanda Miller and a guy called Tony Senna. And they'd left this portfolio. And the Tony's still around? Tony's still around. And, you know, I've never really spoken to Tony about what went on, but <laughs> they left and Anton went in and he was left with this portfolio. And it had, it had all these great old Australian companies, companies that, 
Well, to all extents and purposes, great companies, but they were somewhat illiquid. So the brokers wouldn't talk to Perpetual, not only because it didn't have a lot of money to invest, but because there was no liquidity in the stocks. But they were some of the greatest companies Australia's ever had. And that basically formed the basis for the way we approached investing. You know, what do those companies have in terms of characteristics? And there was basically four of them at the time. You know, they, they all had, you know, a conservative balance sheet. They all had a business that we could understand it, it stood you know stood through cycles and and also they had a management team or a group that seemed pretty dedicated to the business and there was no none of this sort of corporate governance and you know stacking boards just to make it look good on paper you know these companies you know a lot of them had owned a wealth in them and they were just great companies and you know, I reflect on, back on it today when I'm trying to find you know good companies today in those days it was probably oh, I don't know a hundred of them but today, there's, you know, it's lucky to find four or five that are even close to being like what those companies were. They've all been taken over. And as I said, that formed the basis. You know, companies like, you know, All Gas Energy, Australian Chemical Holdings, Gibson Chemicals, all the way down to Waddle Paints, George Western Foods, Reese was there. So in that time, you had obviously some great mentors, the great Anton Tagliaferro, who you know well and I know well, and he's a unique character and he still beats the path, and John Murray, who's gone yeah. on to extraordinary success. What was interesting in my eyes was obviously you formed a great team and you had these gems in the portfolio and you were set up to a degree. But how did it grow? It wasn't a big business. It was 70 or 80, maybe 100 million. What was the success about getting attention? Was was there someone within the group who was just a great salesperson, a great communicator? Was that John? Was it Anton? Was it yourself? Because it took off incredibly over the next decade. Oh, it took a while, to be honest. It took a while. It took, you know, we were in that 91, 92 period. But go back one step from that. At the time, there was probably 20 fund managers around and five or six of those had been blown out of the water. You know, super in 87? In 87 and, and going into, into 1991. Superannuation hadn't really started. Everyone at the time wanted to be a stockbroker and there was 250 stockbrokers out there and, as I said, about 20 fund managers. No one wanted to be a fund manager because there was more money in stockbroking. <laughs> and, you know, we started there and Anton gave me the opportunity to go up there in, in the real early 1990s. John Murray was there. We were all chartered accountants. And even the others we had around us were all sort of trying to survive. You know, there was no bonuses in those days. You know, I can still remember one of the guys above us saying, you know, fund manager are a dime a dozen. This recession doesn't end. You probably won't be here again. That's the same thing that <laughs> happened before that we won't won't have our job. And we know, you know, for a long time there, we didn't think we'd have a job. But, you know, you talk about Anton and, you know, Anton's greatest, and I still believe this today, his greatest asset is his passion. It's infectious. He presents that way. It, it, but he's always been like that. And maybe that's his European background, but he- His high-pitched voice and he- But he's <laughs> but like, you know- He's engaging. But it's more than that. I mean, you, everywhere you look today, everyone's talking about teams. I mean, if you haven't got a guy that can lead with passion, it's not much use having a team. You can fluff it up every, whichever way you like. But, you know, I can, I'll give you one example, which I was thinking about the other night before I was coming in here. You know, and this is in the very early days. I can still remember, you know, the stock exchange floor still existed and there was a, a viewing gallery and the big players in the market such as AMP, National Mutual, CBA, they all had their broker panels and they're all going, being taken out to lunch and wine and dine by brokers wanting to get on the panel. Anton would spend some of his lunch times just wandering down to the gallery at the Stock Exchange, getting a feel for what was going on, probably talking to himself, making f friends with all the characters down there. And I can distinctly remember him coming back 
you know, one lunchtime and I've, I, in those days he was the only one with an office and I had a desk outside the office and I said, oh, what's going on, Anton? And he, he wrapped his knuckles on the desk, tapping and said, oh, Billy the Bear says we should be buying Fleetwood. And the romance of just hearing a guy <laughs> called Billy the Bear making a recommendation, I can imagine Anton's just down on the trading floor and saying, you know, look at MLM, what a dog, and this bloke sitting next to him suddenly starts a conversation with him called Billy the Bear. And so Anton, you know, says, get it up, get it up, Pete, on the screen. You know, not, well, I don't think it was a screen. Look it, look it up. So we looked it up, and Fleetwood at the time was trading at $0.04. Cents. I think the NTA was double that, and it was worth about $6 million. And he goes, what do you think? And I think, well, I don't think we're getting much, too much trouble with it. And it was too small for the funds. So I said, well, so why don't we just buy some for ourselves and just have a look at it? So I bought, I think at the time, 40000 to $0.04, cents, and Anton bought double that, 80000 to $0.04. Cents. And it took a while, it took maybe a year for it to double and triple. So I'm out on the triple, Anton's out on the, the quadruple. And today, you know, where is Fleetwood? $4. But it was all that. It was but, that but it did go much higher than that. Oh, where it went. I don't know. Yeah. I was trying not to look when you're out at 16 cents, haven't been in there at four cents. I mean, there's been plenty of those. But it, it was more an example of the passion. And Anton was very loyal and you knew you could say something to him and you would respect what he says. He said, and but he always had your back. Like it was, and, and John was much the same. John was a little bit different. John was better at the selling side, but you know, we all came together. And, uh, you know, from that, John Sevior joined, Matt Williams joined, you know, Paul Scamatrius came along as well. So, and, and others, you know, Amy yeah. Sames, Karen Tao. I mean, I was but, just, I often think back, I just go back for the laughs, to be honest with you. But, but, <laughs> but it so, was fun. So, Anton, I think, left in about 94, maybe 93, 94. Yeah, went down to Melbourne, time. went down to County, if I remember correctly. He did, yeah. Now, at that stage, obviously, you were taking more of a senior role. Now, let's get the elephant out of the room. Grumpy. You're universally known as grumpy in the market. Yeah, but there's a story. There's a story. There's a, there's a bit I'm, of a story to you. Before you tell me who, who, who nicknamed you that, and I think it's more of out of affection. I think there are a couple of stories because your phone manner did scare a few people, and I've got a couple of stories. One broker told me that he used to ring you in the 90s and you would start a countdown from 10 to 1 and say, in an inference of, you better tell me something interesting, otherwise I'm hanging up after the 10 seconds. Now, these could be urban myths, so don't get too excited yet. Another, an analyst told me that he was sending research to you, a new analyst, you rang the broker on the desk at the same company and said, here's an order, tag that to yourself, and if you get the analyst to stop sending him the research, you'll get another one. <laughs> so, Steady on. <laughs> so, so, I can't look. Some, some look, pretty combative kind of stories out there. So just, now you can tell no, me the no, real story. No, look, look, look. To be honest with you, and I'm, all, I'm always honest with you, but even Anton had said in those days we didn't know who to trust. I mean, mm. we didn't. I mean, when I can tell you stories about you pick it up pretty early that, you know, one particular broker would write a research report in the morning to buy, I don't know, buy Adelaide Steamship, let's use that example at the top of the list, and the dealer would ring up in the morning say, you know, when the researchers just come around in the morning meeting notes, you know, spruiking this stock and saying why well, he should be buying it, he'd suddenly go through his book and lo and behold, he's got Adelaide Steamship to sell on the other side. So it was skewed like that as a crude sort of example. And you soon learn those tricks. And and as I said, you know, we adopted a policy, remembering that the really big brokers didn't want to talk to us because we were perceived as being very small, that we talked to anyone. 
until they did wrong by us. And, you know, we had a breaking list that probably had 200 brokers on it. And we were happy to talk to anyone as long as they didn't waste our time and, you know, added value for one of a, a cliche. And and over the years you sort out who does va- add value, and you do who the, you want to speak to. I think in, in business, and it's proved correct through time, you know, friendships should be secondary in a lot of ways. And, you know, I never – and, and I know Anton didn't either. We never really wanted to get too close to too many people. And I know, you know, John was a little a little bit different, but Steve's the same. We just – we're there. It was like a sport to us. We were there. We never treated it as our money. It was other people's money. And, and again, as I said to you, we were trying to survive, you know. And if I was tough and rough, that's the way it well, was. Well, tell, tell us about the story with Grumpy. Oh, look, How did that come about? Originally, if you really want to know the story, it's not much of a story. It originally started working at a stockbroking firm. There was a – I used to turn up early and there was always a girl there, you know, not a bad looking girl that was there before me. I mean, this is when I'm pretty young. And, you know, she was always there and she was always happy. She was always, always nice to me. And I, used, I started calling her happiness and she started calling me grumpy. And then the third bloke heard her one day call me grumpy. And, and as Radar O'Reilly says in one of those mash episodes, when Trapper starts calling him Snicky, the name stuck. And it, it started from there and that, you know, that breaker became a good friend of mine and, it rolled on from there, and the name probably suited. In some no, it's sense. great when a nickname does stick, I think. It means people <laughs> – Well, Radar doesn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it does mean there's a certain amount of notoriety, but also mate, affection. I make no apologies for it if it – I apologise if I hurt anyone if I was no, right. No, I think so. it was all in good fun. Everyone tells the stories with a lot of laughs involved. The 1990s wouldn't be overstating it as saying, I think it was the golden era – of funds management. It's definitely when funds management came into their own. You mentioned BT in the 80s. They were a bit of a standout. But the 90s, there were a lot of big names. You, Rose, at the same time, the Greg Perry yeah. and Ian Harding at Colonial, and you had Rowan Headley at BT, who was a young star. Yeah. You know, there was Robert Maple Brown, who'd yeah. been around for a long time, but built an incredible boutique business. So there were a lot of names. There was Greg Matthews and the guys at Murky Mutts. They were building a big business and David Paradise and Ben Griffiths and a few others who we know these days was there. Golden era, very competitive though. You know, I can't speak for the other guys, but I think we respected everyone, each other. I had a lot of respect for Greg Perry, Robert Maple Brown. Did their success push you on though? Did you sit there no, and say, well, just, these guys no, 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 are setting no, the more, benchmark? It was more like a, you know, a rugby league team going against someone else. It was like South playing Manly or... You know, and there was five or six really good teams. You know, it was a really good competitive competition. But I think much the same as at Perpetual, we were all driven to succeed. You know, Greg tells the same sort of story about his background and where he was before and and how lucky he was. Of them all, Greg was probably the – he was a freak as far as I was concerned. But the others were very, very good too. All they, had their own style, all a bit different. Well, they are a little bit different. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, and I think that's important for any investor to look at a fund manager, much the same as a company, is to work out – what to expect that fund manager to be doing. And if they, they go off on a tangent away from what you think, well, then start asking questions as to why they're doing it. And it can be so- a sign as it is for a listed company. So, no, but to answer your question, it was a competitive, enjoyable period, but it was also a period that was backed by very good growth and superannuation. And it was in a period when the big super funds such as Australian Super could and did have about 20% of their funds spread right across the Australian marketplace, but across the fund managers that they they chose to take on. And when I say that, I mean, I can distinctly remember uh, managing money for Australian SIP when it had about three, maybe $5 billion. I think it was less than that. 
and today it's got $200 billion. Incredible. And they've been successful, but I think the story that's not often told away from the self is that a lot of the figures you see with superannuation funds are down to the, you know, guys like John Nolan who selected Power and Peter Cooper that generated fantastic performance for for some of those big super funds in the early days and are still doing it today, but obviously the, the impact is a little bit or somewhat smaller given the mass of money that the big super funds have got. But, you know, that played its part in it as well. You know, super was taking off. You know, obviously we're coming out of a – the same old thing happens. You're coming out of, you know, a pretty bad period and markets are running and taking off and, you know, everyone wants to be part of it, including the retail investor. And Perpetual, like First State, you know, had a lot of re- – a lot of success in the retail market first before, you know, entered the wholesale market or superannuation market, if that's the right word. I think you hit on a good theme there. I've always thought that the people you want to back if you're going to back a fund manager, whether it be the smallest investor or the biggest, is ideally you want someone on the up. And in that period, there were a lot of guys in their 30s and some women, obviously, in your, in the teams that you've mentioned, some very good investors, a lot of them the same age, a lot of them ambitious, a lot of them with a lot of energy. Do do you subscribe to that view that there's a period when a manager's at their best and that's the time to invest with them? To be honest, I think I'm better now than I was. Oh, really? (laughs) From the, just from the lessons you learn, but, but I think the best analogy, it's like a sport. You know who the good cricket players are or you know who the good soccer players are and, I still believe today investing is a lot like a sport. It's, you know. Well, the score goes up every day, doesn't well, it? Well, it does. And, you, you know, I and those other guys were competing against each other. And, you know, it gets a little bit silly. I mean, if you're trying to do it on a quarterly basis or I think, you know, one stays there for us for, at 4 5 two, we're getting daily or minute-by-minute minute performance. It was just ridiculous. But we were getting asked on a, you know, basically a daily base of what some clients' how performance was. I mean, it just gets ridiculous. But to answer your question, I mean, when it's like anything, if you find someone that's passionate, you can understand what they're doing and, you know, they're doing it for all the right reasons, you know, I'd back them. It's the same with the CEO. You can tell it straight away with the CEO, you know, Flight Centre got Brian McNamee, you could tell it. It, it, CSL. it. it was there in front of you. And it was the same with a lot of the companies we had it in the early days at Perpetual. You know, Dick McElwain, we could, you know, go remember going to the going to the pub with him. I can't imagine doing that with too many CEOs in <laughs> This is Queensland Tap. Yeah, Queensland Tap. I think I think he passed away recently. But he was a terrific guy. And he was so passionate about the business. Alan Piper from AP Eagles. I mean, Alan Piper did did a masters on cars at University on you know what new cars? How many number? Okay, I still remember him coming in telling me, one day Australia will, will sell a million new cars in a year, and he was right. And sadly, he died early as well. But the guy from Rothmans was so passionate about cigarettes. You, you know, you'd, <laughs> you'd go and see him, and it was such a learning experience. He'd tell you about the bike he's bringing illegal cigarettes down from Queensland into the New South Wales towns to make money and uh, all this sort of stuff. And you sort of, John Gay, I mean, John Gay at Guns very early on. You know, I remember playing golf with him and he telling me the story about how the week before he was out in his boat and he fell asleep and the boat blew up and he almost drowned and we had a big investment in Guns at the time. But, you know, it was, you're always learning things. George Western Foods, I mean, I still remember going out there and meeting management and that was so hard to do to try and get in to see them because we hadn't met them for years but we knew the company was all right. And right at the end of the day there's an old bloke and the sun's coming in through the window and it's reflecting off him and he's he's the wheat buyer he's, and he's in charge of the wheat purchases for Jules Western Foods. And somehow we got talking about silos and how much wheat's in the silos and that sort of thing. And he said, oh, the silos are pretty good, are pretty full, but you've got to remember 
the druggies, when they want to get rid of someone, they throw them in the silos and they drown. I mean, it was all this sort of crazy it's pretty stuff. Pretty heavy but, stuff. Well, I mean, but you would never have thought of that. And I mean, it's just not, it was just, but you knew that guy knew his business, you know. I mean, <laughs> he knew more I than mean, his I business. Mean, I mean, and then there was, a, you know, there were, there were funny times too that, you know, there was a, there was a CEO that locked us in a room for an hour and a half and forgot about us and, you know, we were trying to get out and, you know, it was all that sort of fun. So, it was enjoyable. But sticking with competition, the one thing that evolved at Petrol was a lot of internal competition yeah. over the years. As you got bigger in those back end of the 90s, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you split the industrial fund up and John yeah. ran half, you ran the other half. So all of a sudden, two of it, you were going in the same building at the same time and that became competition. Was that good for you? Oh, yeah, I think it was good for us. I mean, it was was hectic at times. But, you know, to take that a step back, even for stockbrokers, and it must be must be so hard for stockbrokers given that they've always got to come out with a buyer recommendation the analyst, but all the skews very much towards a buy. It's very hard to theoretically judge an analyst because I'll always remember the buy anecdotally or the sell that they came up with and you have these big arguments and that sort of stuff. So, you know, not very early on, but as time went on, we started, you know, giving the the analyst a, you know, a theoretical amount of money to, to run and it was measured, you know, pretty hard. And so their calls were measured against a benchmark. And at the end of the day, you know, the analyst would be paid a bonus based upon his or her performance. And it was pretty, pretty hard and fast, right? And one of the problems of, you know, a fund manager has is they're off, you know, 99% of them, I think, are good at managing money. They're terrible at managing people because it's, it's a different skill set. But, but under that scenario, we could tell, you know, we could say to, you know, we've announced this. Well, here you are. This is the value you've had. These are the calls you've made. And with the industrial share fund, yeah, we split it between John had done it, you know, done a terrific job with the small companies fund and we split it. But that led to us both basically competing against each other. I played cricket with John for three or four years. He definitely competitive. All the times, yeah. I mean, there were funny times, you know. There were funny times where I was selling a stock and John was buying it. And I can, I can distinctly remember, you know, Graham Bradley, who was the CEO of Perpetual, walking past one day and John suddenly found out I'm the seller of the stock and he's buying it. And the, <laughs> the computer's been thrown at the, at the wall and Graham's walking past wondering what the hell's going on, but... It was all that sort of thing. And I was probably the other way another time. And but you know, we had respect for each other. Good. And it was good. It was good. When honestly, honestly, I think it was good. It was fine. It was a sport. And you know, that's what you want. You want you want people that are driven. You don't want it, you don't want it too closeted. So if the nineties was the golden era of the funds management, the the first decade of the two thousands, you could almost say was the era of the boutique. A lot of these guys went off that you talk about Peter Cooper, David Paradise out of Murky Mutts, Jeff Wilson, who I used to work for. Even Paul Zaratus went and set up with Ausbill and the list is pretty big and maybe the only one who was around before that, as far as I can remember, was Maple Brown and he lasted a long time. So a lot of kudos to him. And Anton went out, John Murray went out, the, the list is endless. So the environment was right. People thought they could do it themselves, I suppose. And you went out to 452 Capital with Warwick Negus. Yeah. And Warwick left three or four years, or he sold somebody's stake and went, went into CBA three or four years later. Going into your own business, a lot of other considerations than when you work for an institution. There's a lot of other things you have to think about. Is that how you would? Oh, I'm mean, thinking, looking back on it, it's very much like, to some extent, like an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur, hmm. if that makes any sense to you. And the only trouble is that you learn things, and a lot of tech entrepreneurs have failed before with some of the things they've done, and then they've learned from that and gone on with it. But 
you know, the era of the boutique had a couple of things going for it in the sense that technology had come along, you know, the internet had come along and, you know, the telexes had gone, um, the trading floor had gone, seats had gone, superannuation had got bigger, back offices would be, I think the settlement was down to two or three days. You know, your performance figures were coming out daily. I still remember being- That must be distracting. That side of it was because at Perpetual in the early days, we only got performance monthly and it was four days after month end that we got it. So, you know, we could, we generally had an idea of what stocks had gone up. We, we wanted you'd to- You'd in your head how you were going. Well, yeah, but you didn't know how well you'd done or how badly you'd done or if you'd lagged or whatever. And it, But then it just went- it flipped too far the other way. As I said, you know, at one stage here, it was coming out dark. It was coming out minute by minute to us, and it was just, it was just silly. And the clients, you know, as more and more competition came into the marketplace, the clients was, you know, was were asking on a quarterly basis. They'd give you one quarter to underperform, but rarely did you get three um, from some of them or a lot of them. And it was just. The pressure started to build. But to answer your question, they were the glory days and, and it was doable. And, you know, I look back and like, now would I do it any different? There's probably a few things I, I changed, but the idea of having Warwick effectively run the business and set it up, I think was the right idea. But, you know, when, when I joined with Warwick, you know, I said to him, you know, in 10 years' time, your biggest part is to try and get you out, to get us out of this, right? Hopefully. And Warwick did in about 18 months. CBA came knocking on the door within 18 months. And you know, I, I, there was no way in the world I was going back into to an institutional life. Mm. I just got out of that, even though I'd enjoyed, enjoyed, you know, 12 years of perpetual. I just, we just set up 452. And, you know, CBA came knocking. I never thought they were going to buy the business, but, you know, Warwick got them over the line, I don't know, 18 months later. And that obviously caused a problem between Warwick and myself when when I said no. And because it's an interesting scenario, isn't it? Because you're the brand, you're the fund manager oh, that people. Yeah, but follow. that's that's Matt, Matthew. You and I both know that's overrated <laughs> to a large extent. And when you hear that sort of stuff, you you know, it's just it's it irritates me. It's just you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, but I really enjoyed having Warwick as a partner. And I know some people don't believe that, but I really did. I actually. Because the business grew quite quickly, didn't it? You did. Well, it did, did grow quickly. Well. We, we, you know, it did take off. But it, go back a couple of months from that. It, I think we we started over Christmas or in November, and you know, for about three or four months, I wasn't quite sure that you know we we're going to get any money, and <laughs> and I'd just gone through a divorce. I didn't have a lot of money. I think all the money I had was basically the perpetual shares that I had left, and. And I tipped something. I think I tipped two hundred fifty thousand dollars into it, and Warwick tipped. 200 or something like that. And I know that sounds like a lot of money, but when you're losing a place in Australia Square and you're not sure the money's coming, it's, it does sort of get a little bit interesting. But <laughs> we eventually got, you know, we eventually got one client and we got another one and it started growing from there in probably March of, you know, after we started. But it wasn't a case. And it would have been a pretty good market for you because we came out of the tech wreck then. Uh, and it, there was some value to be found. I would have thought of the next. Well, well only in tech stocks. <laughs> so you say you say that. Now, if you you flip that the other way, actually, the and it's not the right word. The value stocks had outperformed the tech stocks. So you know, I mean, it wasn't the tech wreck in Australia wasn't a tech wreck. It was just a speculative wreck in a lot of areas. Unlike the US, where Amazon did come again, and there was something to Amazon. The craziness, not so much the craziness, but the vision was ahead of its time in the US. Here it was a little bit different. It was just sort of a follow-on in a lot of areas to the US, with the exception of News Corp. I mean, I've told the story before that, you know, right at the height of the um, tech bubble, right near it, 
Time Warner bid for AOL, they merged. And News Corporation, which going into that was about 18% of the index, suddenly in one day went up 25%, 30%, just on the back of that takeover. And we didn't have a share, right? And and that's the first time that I really experienced and really enjoyed coming out the other side when, when news did eventually fall because we had got that core right and it was a hard thing to take when it ran and we underperformed for a month or so there, but it was enjoyable to come out the other side of it. And that happened a few times. I mean, that's that happened in 2008 and, again, when we didn't own things like Babcock and Brown or Elko or I think we're underweight, the major banks going into the financial crisis and the heavily geared property trust we weren't in. But, you know, those calls can, can take time, but sometimes they come off. Not calls, the way your style that you invest comes off eventually over time. But investing with a fund manager is cyclical. I mean, you can't. It can't be right every cycle. Well, you're mad if you go into expecting a fund manager to, to do that. And the thing that concerns me today is, you know, you, today you turn on the TV and some of the big super funds have got their 20% returns flash up on the TV for the last year in front of potential investors with a little comment that past performance, the smallest writing you can see, there's no guide to the future and it's, you know, I just think it's, it's dangerous, and, you know, but as they say, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it rhymes in terms of selling at bull market performance. I'm going to take you forward a bit with 452. Obviously, you had the diagnosis around the brain cancer and you've told the story before that you basically were told to get your affairs in order, which yep. no one wants that call in their life and it's, it's obviously incredibly confronting. And then later on, you got a second opinion because I, my understanding was you didn't feel that much worse, you thought it was worthwhile and, and – that was revoked in, in some means. But you're brave enough to say, I've heard you say publicly before, that soon after that period or around that period, you can clarify that, that you were emotionally feeling down. Yeah. Today we might call it you were depressed. Yeah. I don't know if you want to go that far. But brave to say that publicly. How did that play out in terms of your own head and how did you work your way out of it? Because obviously you come out a stronger kind of well-adjusted individual these days. Yeah. Do you remember that period and what oh, you did? Yeah, I obviously, obviously remember it. <laughs> There's a lot to that period, but I remember it, you know, I remember it quite well. I mean, I, I was pretty, you know, I probably was, I was pretty depressed going into it. Before the diagnosis. Yeah, before the diagnosis. Basically what had happened is that, you know, I wasn't right emotionally and I'd found it, you know, through various people, some very good doctors, and they weren't quite sure what was going on. And that led to an MRI scan that, you know, showed, you know, some shading on the brain that then went down the path of me having a biopsy or an operation on my brain to see what, what that shading was. And, you know, you learn all this stuff as you go through it, but the bi biopsy was cut by a pathologist that I never met and it came back saying that I had brain cancer, for want of a better word, uh, or for, for the exact word. And the diagnosis was that it was such a severe case of brain cancer that, you know, you've probably got six, eight months to live. So I went on to, to chemo. I went through all that and met some, some incredible people, like the oncologist that I had. Like I, I could remember going in and seeing her and, and paying her $180 for a consultation to try and, try and save my life. And in the back of my mind, I'm trying to work out what would that be in the, 
you know, in brokerage and a BHP share on a management fee. And, and she was, you know, I'm going to win lose all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the first meeting I had with her, she said, we've got to give you rat poison to, to try and make you better. So it was pretty hard chemo. She put me up for a trial drug in Germany, which is one of these tests that they try and do with the drugs for COVID these days before they, they allocate them. But I got knocked back on that because it was, the sample size was was too small in terms of making the drug profitable and all that sort of thing. But but I went through all that process, as you said, you know, I was told to get my affairs in order. But eventually, you know, it became a little bit obvious that maybe something was wrong in terms of the diagnosis. And then again, you know, I can still remember the oncologist ringing the pathologist and saying the cut may be wrong. It's And this is six months into it. And the pathologist, because she's got, she's I'm standing next to her, next to her and she's got him on loudspeaker and he says, Missy, just be glad that your your medicine's working and then hung up on her and I think, oh, fuck, geez, there you go. Uh, sounds a nice bloke. But um, <laughs> so there was all that, you know, I mean, there was all that. It's, How know, did she take that? Well, she, she was, she persevered, she per, she just, you know, you're standing there. She obviously didn't want to make it look too bad when I'm just standing there next to her. But for want of a better word, she had a good bedside manner. I knew I could trust her and... She eventually, you know, I, got, I think we got to seven months in and I hadn't died and I was, wasn't feeling that good. Although the chemo was starting to affect, you know, my legs and that, you know, I could hardly move some days with regards to my legs. But a lot of people didn't think it was the chemo. They thought that was the disease mm. from the brain and all, that, and all that sort of stuff, Matthew. It was, the best way I can put it was a grandstand view on, on cancer or, you know, terminal cancer. And, you know, a lot of people don't survive. I mean, I often get asked, you're disappointed that 452 didn't work out. Well, I can tell you what, I meant to be dead 12 years ago. I take that trade any day of the week. And that just led to everything else, you know what I mean? But, you know, my confidence was shot to a large, well, not to, to a large extent for a little period of time after it. You know, through the whole process, I'd been seeing a psychiatrist and she, you know, I can remember saying one day, you've got to try and get your confidence back without, you know, without doing, overdoing it. And, and this will sound bizarre, but one of the ways I did that is that a guy called Alan Collar, which we all, you know, we all probably know, and a guy from Dean, a guy called Dean Patchett and the Matters had these road shows and they asked me to go and talk at them. And I probably didn't do a good job because I was still, still trying to recover from things, but just getting up and standing in front of people and talking about, you know, investments, it just sort of all helped, if that makes sense. It's a very small example. And as time went on, it just happened my life. You know, life, you know, life's got its ups and downs. And I, you know, I often think there were times at Perpetual where I was offered jobs elsewhere and I could have taken those jobs and it would have been a disaster. And 452 would never have happened. But as I said to you, I mean, I'd much rather be alive today than, than the reverse. Well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So and it did. I did. I mean, it did. I mean, particularly in that industry where it does get to the stage where it becomes sort of a performance ladder with regards to your own wealth. And I often think about guys and girls that have done really well out of it that I know. Have they really enjoyed it as much as they could, the wealth that they've amassed? And, and you know, I did well out of it. I, you know, I, I self-funded. I, and on the other side of that, in the next you know, eight years after diagnosis, one of the things I did was I, I travelled the world mm. basically at various times. And, you know, if I hadn't done that then, you know, and we came 10 years later, well, you, we've got COVID now. I wouldn't have been able to do that, you know. I wouldn't be able to do that now and I would never have had that experience. And I, I remember at the time running into you and you, oh, I'm pretty sure it was on Pitch Street in the city and you'd been to Texas. Yeah, we went and, to- and you you said you'd been a few times and there was a moment there you, I said, well, would you ever move there? And you said, oh, you never know. So obviously there was an intrigue with what was happening in the US 
Oh, I like, yeah, I loved it. I mean, it was the, again, this is a crude example. It was the cowboy spirit of Texas. It was very much like Australia in all the ways, you know. The guns get done to death here, but one of the big conferences we went to four or five times was South by Southwest in Austin. And Austin at the time was only still reasonably small and the crowds had come from all over the world into Austin. And it was, and as Willie, it's the home of Willie Nelson. And as Willie Nelson, would say it's a weird place, and it was a weird place. It was so, it, it was for Texas. Over it's a patch of blue in a state of red. Well, in those it's days. just, it's <laughs> just, it was just really good. It's got, it's got, it's become the place to be now, and, and it's grown out of its, out of its comfort zone, I think. But it was a really good time. But the, but the, you know, more recently, and if you take that whole eight year period as a whole, and I've been to a lot of places, the most fun, the most unexpected fun was when we went to Russia with. You know, with the Socceroos and travel all over Russia. Who's we? <laughs> Anton uh, go to that. No, no, Anton didn't come. This well, he was there, but he didn't come. A guy called Leah Friday, who was behind the setting up of Treasury Group and making it successful, and another bloke. And we've done a few world soccer world. It's not a bad way to see a country actually going to a World Cup, but you know, we basically just travelled all over Russia, following various teams and getting on trains. And I can remember getting on a train. It was a fourteen-hour train trip across Russia, and. And the carriage next door to us, there was this big, big Russian military guy that suddenly was so intrigued with us, he became our instant friend. And he could only speak a little bit of English, but he communicated all right. But every time he tried to speak English and put the wrong English pronunciation and we told him he was wrong, he'd smash himself in the head. (laughs) You know, to cut a long story, he was actually on the train every three weeks and it was a five-day train trip going across Russia and it's just uh, it, Russia was so surprising. The wealth, the the poorness, the the people, which were lovely, um, was nothing what you expect. Particularly, you know, landing at that airport, which is still from the Iron Curtain days. But outside, it, there's some some lovely places. And you know, it may well be it may well have all been put on for the, the soccer and the like. But a real know, a real eye opener, hey? Yeah, it was good fun. Now I'm going to take you forward now as a private investor to the modern world that we live in and the markets we're in. Something you said on an earlier podcast a few months back with LiveWise Patrick Polk was that companies now and analysts and fund managers are looking at things that are not necessarily audited. And that worried you as a way of measuring the value of a company. So if we go into that a bit further, there's terms like annual recurring revenue. Now, revenue is audited, but the forecast figure of annual recurring revenue is not. There's other things like the lifetime value of a customer. And I'll never forget on a couple of those things, one company I asked, well, how long is your average contract for? Because they were quoting an annual recurring revenue. And they said, the average contract's 12 months. And I said, well, that's not really recurring. So there's all these different measures the company make up and they're watched and followed religiously now, especially the software companies. Does that worry you? And who do you blame for us getting away from traditional ratios and metrics that do go through the audit process that we relied upon? Do you blame the companies? Do you blame the investors, the analysts? For me, a lot has come out of the companies, especially out of San Francisco, and they've got everyone to look over this way when they're burning a lot of money. Have you got a view on that? Because it worries me. Oh, it's it's part and parcel of you know, a bull market cycle to a large extent. I mean, it's happened before, I suppose, to, to some extent with mining companies here and, you know, the Poseidon boom in terms of 
drilling holes and that sort of thing. They, you know, they'd only put up the returns from one assay. This is in the Poseidon days, which is somewhat similar, crudely somewhat similar. But I mean, if you look at something, well, let's take, you know, you know, something I'm reasonably familiar with, you know, something like Twitter. Like, how on earth with Twitter, with all this robots on it, bots on it, how on earth is that a reliable figure in terms of users that you've got? I mean, a lot of the names are, not, not so much fake names, but well, they are. A lot of them are fake names, but they're, they're unreliable names. You know, they, they could be anyone. And just to quote a lot of, you know, a lot of the industry today, the, they're using figures that, that aren't audited, that aren't necessarily technically correct in terms of what, you know, what's being sold. I mean, it's the same with Facebook. It's the same with, with Snapchat. I mean, just because you've got a user, it doesn't necessarily mean that user or just because you've got a follower doesn't necessarily mean that follower's connecting every day of the week. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that follower could be anyone. And, and none of this stuff sort of ordered it. To some extent, it's the same where companies put out same stores sales growth mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. It's not it's not necessarily always audited in terms of specifics and that sort of thing. So, you know, you've got to be a little bit wary and, you know, as you've alluded to, we're in, you know, we're in a pretty good bull market at the time, at, at the moment. So it's not different this time? It's normally Oh, they sort that- of rhyme. I mean, they sort of rhyme. I mean, you know, obviously the difference is this time is that, you know, things like crypto, uh, if that's the right word, 2.0, Eight trillion US dollars in value all up. If you added all the coins up or, or all the crypto assets up, and there's a lot of speculation in that market. There's probably something in terms of blockchain being successful, and you know something will be successful in that area. But there's a lot of you know there's a lot of speculation going on there. You know, away from the stock market, you know, I think you know venture capital to a lesser extent, private equity. You know, private equity's got a lot of firepower still to be you know. The power still to be placed. Interest rates have never been lower. There's a lot of money going into venture capital, you know, in companies that haven't haven't made a lot of money. And the other side, the other thing that never really gets talked about is a lot of the employees are working for the promise of, you know, the shares or the options they're being issued being worth something later on. And it, it leverages on itself a bit, and they're not getting paid probably in dollar terms what they should be getting paid. They're getting, you know, script and that sort of stuff, which, you know, when the market corrects, you know, it's similar to what happened in, in the dot-com boom ending. It, I was going to say, we've seen this movie before, yeah, but yeah, we, we don't have, seem to be too scared of it this time. And, and again, this time it's a little bit, you know, it's it, there was something to Amazon, for example, with the dot-com boom. It was too early, right? It was there and it, it almost didn't survive, but there was obviously something to Amazon because it was around then. But a lot of the other companies that, you know, weren't worth a lot. But you've got this other phenomenon going on in the market at the moment, again, particularly in the US, that, you know, passive money's in the market, indexes are in, you know, index funds are in the market. And Apple, which was trading on five years ago on 13 times earnings, now trading, you know, mid-30s. Well, another phenomenon of that is brokers now talk to a lot of machines. And they are attuned to, an analyst at brokers, and they're attuned to saying certain words that, the machine reacts to because they've been trained to. That to me is a situation where a filter that you need in any common sense investing is being taken out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but at the end of the day, if you're a a true investor and true to label, you know what the implicit value of on a medium to long term basis, the implicit value of what you want to be buying a share at. Like you're right, and there's been plenty of occasions where I've wondered what's going on in the market, and I'm pretty sure that, 
you know, when there's a decision made that everyone wants to be out of building material stocks globally, it, it impacts our market here with Boral and, you know, Reese, for example, on a particular day when that when that flow goes the other way. So the markets have become globalised. We're getting down to, 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 you know, to sector betting in a lot of areas, you know, reopening betting or, for want of a better word, COVID bet. You know, betting if it comes back again, but that's all being played out in in funds and ETFs and the and the like. And you're right, but at the end of the day, if your investing decision is based upon fundamentals and the right reason, you're not always going to be able to time a price. But it can benefit that on the other side when you're trying to get out. You know, it can get can shoot up to stupid levels, and at times it comes back to you. Probably a good place to finish off on. You, you were well known as a, a value investor, and I know value is in the eye of the beholder, and it's not always in the multiple, it's in the prospects of the company, but value is value. And in the last few years, it hasn't paid to be a value. We're all taught that you have to read Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett told us that. And he grew up in out of the Depression era where he could buy stocks below their cash backing or, or their net asset backing, that became, that's become virtually impossible today. I suppose my question is, does value investing reappear or do you think it, it is a part of history and that in the future we don't see the opportunities that you might have saw in the early 90s or Ben Graham saw in the, the tw- out of the 20s depression into the 30s? It, it, I think Peter Lynch had it right in terms of the way he classified the way he invested, whether it was a an asset play, a growth stock, a cyclical. And that's basically what I tried to do as, as the years went on, is to, you know, when you focus on a company, you're trying to determine, you know, whether it's a cyclical or whether it's an asset play as to why you're buying it. I suppose I fell into, for want of a better word, I don't like the word value too much, but I fell into that sort of style because there wasn't a lot of growth stocks in Australia. The great, you know, again, the, the best growth manager Australia's ever had was, was Greg Perry. I mean, I'd hate to think what Colonial's funds would be worth if they just didn't sell any of the shares he bought, you know, <laughs> like the Transurbans, the, you know, the Hills Made Away, which got knocked off, but, you know, all those great names that, that he had in there. And I suppose, you know, as I said to you earlier on, I think I'd be better today investing because... I've had the experience, but I've also learned a lot about what goes on in the US. And that's the one thing I have found being out on my own is that there's a bigger world out there and Australia is basically a taker in a lot of ways of management styles if they do get to Australia. And, you know, I think one of the problems we've got, well, there's a few problems we've got in Australia at the moment. That we lack that founder mentality. We, we lack companies taking risk. There's too much focus. I think it's gone far too f- far the wrong way with regards to dividends and franking. Which is impacting. It should be reinvesting in. Well, the it's company. just, it's, you know, I mean, you look at, you know, everyone waffles on about how great franking, you know, franking dividends is, but two of Australia's greatest companies have been CSL and Cochlear. That, you know, I've never really paid out a hundred percent of earnings or anything like anything like that. And I think it's it's, it's the the wheels twisted too far or it, it's the other way. And I think you know that's one of the problems we've got in Australia. Companies aren't reinvesting. That's why there's not a lot of technology, real good technology developments in Australia. I mean, look at the boards. None of them up until recently have had really much technological experience on the boards. And I think, you know, other things like corporate governance have become far too prescriptive. 
And as a consequence, the Australian market hasn't performed that well since the GFC. Well, it it hasn't. I mean, they'll all quote dividends, but in terms of an accumulation index, and it hasn't done too bad, but it hasn't kept up with the US. And we just haven't had the entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, you've got everyone running around at the moment talking about, oh, I've got a skills skills shortage. Well, maybe we have, but, you know, the reinvestment of companies or the lack thereof has played a big part in, you know, in that result. And, you know... You look at companies, and you know, I made a bit of money early on in AMP, and but if you look at that company all the way through, it probably ticked every every box with regards to corporate governance, and it's been an absolute catastrophic disaster. And it, things can become too prescriptive for all the wrong words and uh, all the wrong reasons. And I think we're going too far in a lot of lot of ways that we shouldn't be going. Whether it's as I said, whether it's dividends or whether it's uh, corporate governance or whether it's just Companies taking risks. I think, you know, there should be more of that. There's nothing like finishing a conversation on the AMP. A lot have in the financial markets of Australia. Peter, I want to thank you for coming in. Thanks for your honesty. It's always a terrific chat. 